to be here down in Balmy, Iowa. <laughs> Greetings from Berean Baptist Church in International Falls, Minnesota. My pastor, it, it's really, you're going to, matter of fact, I don't want to get Pastor St. Lawrence in trouble here this morning, but as I was praying about what the Lord would have me to preach on today and to share, um, the Lord led me to Acts chapter 26, and we're going to be talking about missions. Now, you're probably going to think that I'm kind of like, have gun, will travel. And uh, pastor said, you know, we're going to bring in this gun from northern Minnesota, and he's going to finish up and anchor our missions conference and hold you upside down. And if he can't shake it out of you, Big Rusty he brought with will be able to shake it out of you. And that's really why we've been brought in, you know, so watch out, folks, I'm here. You better start giving. I honestly did not know. Pastor, did you talk to me about your missions program? Okay, he didn't. So I, I want you to know that as I'm going to preach on missions this morning, it really was of God the Holy Spirit. Because I had another message that I was looking at from Judges, and this morning I had studied both of them out and was sitting there, Lord, what, what would you really have me to share today? And so the Lord led me to share with you some, some things from Acts chapter 26, and we're going to go there in just a minute. But before I go there, I just want to say it is so refreshing to come to a church of like faith and practice to our church. Rusty, this is really like our Berean, isn't it? And um, Pastor St. Lawrence is like my pastor, Dr. Shane Belding. And it is wonderful to come to a place where the music is God-honoring. It is wonderful to come to a church where we see so many young people. Immediately, Pastor Rusty, just because he's a, a youth guy, he immediately just got fired up. Look, oh man, there's stuff we could do here. And then the other thing he leaned over and said, he said, do you notice, do you hear... In the midst of the congregation, I can hear the young people singing. That is such a thrill to um, see um, teenagers and boys and girls singing out with their love for the Lord. And that tells me something as an evangelist. This isn't my first day in evangelism. I've been in full-time evangelism for um, 3,000, close to 4,000 years. Um, no, 34 years. By the way, Pastor, I was going to ask you, when were you at Maranatha? Wow, um, went down and played against Maranatha in 77, the 77, 78 year. So did you play soccer for them? Yeah. Okay, we were the team that beat you guys up. <laughs> you were the team that won. <laughs> because we were a bunch of ex-football players and hockey players, and we were usually first to the ball. We just had no idea what to do with it once we got there. And I was always looking around for this little net to use a stick to put it in, and, you know, it just it didn't work. But I think we broke one of you guys' legs and put a couple of more in the hospital on that particular day. And that's when Maranatha decided they didn't really want to play Northland anymore. And uh, that's why Northland's no longer in existence, and uh, Maranatha's still going strong. Um, love Maranatha. My son attended their fall semester. So we may have actually played against each other back in the Neolithic era, way, way back when. Yeah, way, way back then when uh, uh, we were still using, um, you know, leather pump-up balls, the same one they were using for football. But anyway, please take your Bibles, if you would, with me this morning and turn to Acts chapter 26. I want to ask you a question. You know, many times we begin to think about what uh, is our view of God. And that's important. We need to come to a theological view of God expressly from the Word of God so that we can understand who we are trusting in. And really that theological understanding begins to be developed at the point of salvation and is deepened as we study the Word of God. But I want to ask you a question, especially in light of your missions conference. Um, boy, we have an exodus of folks already. Here was... <laughs> hey, I didn't even read the Scriptures yet. And, and... I forgot to dismiss the kids. All right, kids are dismissed. And let's do this right now. If anybody else is supposed to be dismissed, let's do that. 
Otherwise, I get this big insecurity thing halfway through. The pastor's wife is leaving, and uh, deacons will see you. You need to go right now. And uh, Rusty, you have to stay here on my team. <clears throat> so this message is for Rusty today, and we'll... <laughs> but seriously, I, I want to ask you a question. Um, how do you think God views earth? I want you to use your mind for just a moment, and if you could go to the very throne room of God immediately when you peeled yourself up off the floor, and <laughs> because obviously that would be the first response when we got into God's presence. But if you were able to walk up and do a short interview with God and say, God, how do you view the earth? How do you think about people down here in the United States of America and across the planet? You know, that's what missions is really all about. It's viewing this world the way God does and then responding appropriately according to the truth of the Word of God. In Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through 20, it's a very significant passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul is going into what I would like to call the confinement phase of his life. He has gone to Jerusalem, he's been arrested, he has appealed unto Caesar, and now he is going to actually go and give his defense before King Agrippa and Festus. As he is giving this defense... He is going to give the account of his salvation experience, which is found in three places in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and here in Acts chapter 26. As Paul is going to give this, he is going to give God's viewpoint of how God really views man and why he sent the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. It has defined who he is since that Acts transformational experience. When you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are going to be introduced to the God that left the beautiful grandeur of an infinite heaven, came down to this earth, shed His precious blood on the cross of Calvary, died for us and rose again from the dead, that we might be saved. But salvation is not just an eternal fire insurance policy. It is a complete and total transformation, as you're going to see in just a moment. The Apostle Paul is going to proclaim this, and it's very interesting, during this phase, while he is here, something else amazing is going on, and this is just, this isn't part of the sermon, so this is absolutely free on the side. Luke was attending him, the beloved physician, and while Paul is awaiting, and during this period of incarceration in Caesarea Philippi, Luke is actually going down to the area of Jerusalem and interviewing people who knew Jesus Christ personally, because you, if you maybe you historically know, and you probably do because you've got a great preacher, but Luke did not know personally the Lord. I meant face to face. So where did he get his information to write his gospel? He got his, his information, I believe, predominantly during this window of time when Paul was here. And as a matter of fact, one of the interviewees, I think, was Mary, the mother of the Lord. And so when you go to Luke chapter 2, and he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise... I believe it's during this phase of confinement that those that were associated with Paul were actually, especially Luke, was able to go down and get some of the nativity information that you and I treasure and use so often during the Christmas period of time. So there's so many things transacting behind the scenes and also that are, are recorded through inscripturation found here in Acts chapter 26. Well, let me read for you quickly Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through 20. And primarily this morning, we are going to focus on verse 18. But look at the account as Paul is, is before giving his defense before King Agrippa. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer 
for myself this day before thee touching all things whereof I am accused of the Jews. Rusty, Paul must have been paying attention to that which you shared from having security in Christ and confidence before God because his life is on the line at this particular period of time. And what does he just say? He said, Lord, I'm happy. Or King Agrippa, I'm happy. Wow, that's security in the Lord in the midst of incarceration. And it really gives us a window into his soul. Verse 3, especially because I know thee to be expert in all the customs and questions which are among the Jews, whereof I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation, at Jerusalem know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God, unto our fathers, unto which promise are twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Verse 8, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Verse 12, whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun. One of the, I'm going to stop right here because I want you to do something. Um, many of you, how many of you are involved in, in reading through the Bible in a year? Okay, you do, those are good. And I want you to continue that. But I want to challenge you, and I'm challenging churches all over America where God gives me the opportunity to preach. This next year, I don't want you to just do what I call in, uh, uh, inform, informative reading. Read so that you get the information out of the Scriptures. What I want you to do is do formative reading. Slowly go through the text and lift out phrases and words that form in your mind your theological concepts of God to the point as to where they alter the way that you live your life. That which is going to form in you a response and a faith premise. I want you to see how significant this event was in the Apostle Paul's life. A bright sunny day and a light comes that is in his presence. And look what it says. That is shining brighter than the sun. That is, that is extremely significant. And Paul is telling the story and he wants you to recognize that. He includes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he wants us to know how significant that light was in his life. And we're going to get to that in just a second. Middle of verse 13. This light shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. And when we were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying, and look at it, here's another little thing in the Hebrew tongue. Did you know that most of the people did not speak Hebrew at this particular time? It was only a language for the scholarly. They were speaking Aramaic and Koine Greek. Spoke unto me in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Verse 15, and I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Verse 16, but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. 
delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O king Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet or appropriate for repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I need your wisdom and thought flow and clarity of mind to articulate your intended message, that your spirit would use it to arrest the hearts and minds of the hearers, to approach their lives, either to continue approaching their lives or to take on a new approach for their lives, to think about this world the way that you do. This is a missions Sunday, O Lord, at this dear church, and it is our prayer that your people would take on the responsibility of seeing that the gospel goes forth, not only in this Jerusalem, in this uh, Judea, this area of Iowa, in the Samaria, the greater upper Midwest area, but unto the ends of the earth, O Lord, that we would see this world the way that you do and be involved not only on a financial level, as you have blessed them greatly, but also on a level, Lord, of personally sharing the gospel so that many come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Bless and help your people, O Lord, to adjust their minds to the truth of the Word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How does God see this world? How, does God, how did God see you before you trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If you're here today and you've never been born again into the family of God, how does God view you? Well, look with me down in verse 18, and we're going to see the purpose of what missions is all about. Now, this is a heavenly vision. Paul himself has said this. The Lord Jesus Christ, he said, I'm going to take how I view things, and I am going to educate you to that. But I'm not just going to educate you. I want you to be motivated. From this point on, I want you to not function according to the way that you've been living your life. I want you to function according to the truth that is going to be revealed unto you. And this is what God, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave to the Apostle Paul. He said, first off, the purpose of missions, look with me and we're going to tear apart verse 18. And if you're accustomed to taking notes, I would encourage you to do so because we're going to look at some of the details of these words. To open their eyes. Now, this word eyes here comes from the Greek word ophthalmos. This is in English transliterated where we get our word for ophthalmology. And the idea, it's used metaphorically, and it's saying that someone here, they're seeing life from a perspective. Now, what is your worldview made up of? Your worldview is made up of what is called presuppositions. In other words, picture it like a pair of glasses. The way that you think about everything, what you presuppose is true, that makes up your worldview. Well, what is the problem with our worldview without Christ? You see, if we do not see this world through God's eyes, through biblical glasses, maybe you're seeing them through evolutionary glasses. Maybe you're seeing through humanistic glasses. Maybe you're seeing them from a, a secular point of view. You're like the, the, the intellectuals on Mars Hill, and you're always wanting to hear something new or a perspective that really is of man and not born of God. But the Bible says in John chapter 14 that Jesus is, in verse 6, the way, the truth, and the life. He is not just a truth. He is the truth. In other words, He 
is the lens through which we must view everything, having a biblical perspective, a worldview that is made up of presuppositions that are actually grounded in the Word of God, transforming our minds to think like God wants us to think. First Thessalonians 5.23, But I pray, God, that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is your thinking self, your choosing self, and your feeling self. It's the way that you intellectually think about God. It's the way that you think about each other. And one of the things that your dear pastor spends week after week doing is studying to show himself approved unto God, bringing the Word of God. And you know what its design is to do? Strip from your mind, thought by thought, attitude by attitude, part by part, that which is not biblical, and replace it with that which is true from the Word of God. That is his goal week by week, to get you to see things the way that God would have you to see things. Now, in order to do this, and again, this is used metaphorically, you are blind before trusting Christ as your personal Lord and Savior to, to biblical truth. So the eyes of your mind must be opened. But wouldn't it be neat if it was just merely an intellectual transaction? If I could give you the tenets and arguments, you know, um, much of the work that I did in my doctorate was dealing with creationism and evolution. And listen, I've got some real zinger arguments that are transcendental presuppositional. As a matter of fact, you want to read a great book on that. Read Dr. Jason Lyle's book called The Ultimate Proof. He was one of my instructors. Went to my secular medical doctor, who was a materialistic atheist, and I said unto you, um, I said unto him, I said, Hey, do you really believe evolution is true? Is that your worldview? And he goes, Absolutely. And I said, All right, if that is true, I want to talk to you about morality. I want to talk to you about predictability and scientific experience. I want to talk to you about empiricism. And I want to show you that your position is really arbitrary, inconsistent, and denies the preconditions of intelligibility. And he scratched his head and goes, Okay, I see that you've read a little bit in this area. I'm willing to listen. Gave him Dr. Lyle's book. He came back uh, to me, I think it was probably two or three months later, and I said, Okay, Doc, tell me, is evolution true? And he goes, There is functionally no possible way that evolution can possibly be true. He said, if the Word of God is not true, and if Jesus Christ is not God, functionally you cannot possibly know anything. I said, congratulations, your eyes have been opened. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Here's the problem. I can present unto you all the intellectual arguments. We can do what's called an evidential um, argumentation. I can say, well, look at the Grand Canyon, and, I can, and we can look in the area of Bible, we can look in the area of astronomy, we can look in the area of biology, uh, we can talk about the DNA model, the you know, deoxyribonucleic acid, that nothing has ever been added to the genome. It's only variation and mutation. We can talk about all those things, and I can get into the evidence arguments. But the problem is, is if your worldview is not biblical, you're going to make rescuing devices and excuses up for everything that you see, and you're going to see them differently. And so we can argue on that particular level until the cows come home, and you're never going to have the eyes of your mind opened. How then can your eyes be opened, and to what must they be opened? Let's continue. It says in verse 18 that the gospel missions is really about opening people's minds up. How is that done? Look at the next phrase, and to turn them. Now that word turn, 
is extremely significant as it's used throughout the New Testament. For those of you that are Bible students, it comes from the, for the word epistrepho. It's used 39 times. Uh, 16 times in the New Testament, it's used for turning. Six to be converted. Six to return. Four to turn about. And three to turn again. And the idea behind this is to turn them from worshiping that which they have set up as an idol in their life to the one and true God. Now, what is idolatry? Really, you know... This morning, I don't think any of our teenagers here in the room got down and said, Oh, record player, I pray unto you. You know, oh, I'm sorry, I'm dating myself. Oh, CD player, no, no, I'm dating myself. Oh, iPhone with, you know, (laughs) I'm trying to get catch up here. It it takes me a while. And whatever it is, I know you don't pray to those things. I know. But you see, an idol is anything that you ascribe great worth to and spend your time on. You're ascribing its worth-ship. What do you really value? What is the thing that you value the most? You see, the Lord Jesus Christ came to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, and he said, you know what I value? I value the Old Testament, I value the Lord Jehovah, and I have an idea of what this is all about. And the Lord said, stop! What you've done with that which was good in the Old Testament is perverted it and demented it to the point of the place now. Now it has become an idol to you and you're doing things with it that I never intended for you to do. You see, God gives us blessings. God gives us gifts. And oftentimes we take the blessings and the gift and focus on them rather than the giver. And in doing so, it becomes idolatry. Well, to an unsaved person... What do they live for? You know, Rusty and I will tell you, we get guys that come on board our boats. And first off, they're really wowed by our boats. Rusty and I have been pro staff with Lund for many years, and we have some really cool boats. Let me tell you how I get to it. matter of fact, we just ordered number 40 and 41. We get these gorgeous boats in the springtime, and we don't even have to pay for them. We just pay taxes on them, and then in the fall we sell them, and then we do it all over again the next year. And God has wonderfully opened the door, and honestly, we drive some gorgeous equipment. Can we afford that equipment? Absolutely not. <laughs> but God has done that just so that we can use that for guiding. Well, many times we get people of the world, they climb on board our boats and they're just wowed. Oh, man, look at the electronics and the big motor and this fast and fishing stuff and it's cool and we've got the latest wow and the whiz-bang and, you know, you can touch the trolling motor and it'll keep you in a spot and we can walk anywhere we want in the boat and it'll stay there. You know, it, we, you know it's the, we, the guy you tell to shut up and fish, you know, kind of thing. I, I mean, they're really wowed with all things. We can tell that this is one of the idols of their heart. For us, it's like a hammer. It's like a saw. It's like a radial arm saw. It's like a tractor. It's like a plow. It's like a combine. It's a tool. That's all it is to accomplish what our goal is. What is our accomplish? What are we trying to accomplish? To open their eyes and to turn them from that which they are ascribing as really of worth and to recognize that the only thing of worth is Jesus Christ as the Lord of their lives. To open their eyes and to turn them, and we're going to continue on there, uh, this is the purpose of missions, to open their eyes to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is the power of missions? Look what it is here in, in the middle of verse 18. To turn them from what? From darkness unto light. Now, that word darkness, again, is used metaphorically. And it comes from the Greek word skotos. And the idea means that which has blinded them to the position so that they're not open to seeing the light. Now, who is the light? Fasten your seatbelts because I promise you, what God has placed in His Word right here is going to be really cool. You ready for this? You young people are going to like this, especially if you have any interest in photography. The word light there comes from the Greek word phoos. 
Transliterated into English, that's where we get our word for photography. And if you read Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter, especially describing Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the image, the express image of God the Father of what God is like. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, I want to show you a photograph. Now, the photograph that you're going to see from the Word of God is not one where, you know, he was this tall and he was this strong and he had, you know, was this height. It's not that kind of a photograph. It describes his heart. It describes his attitude. It describes his character. It describes his integrity. It describes his eternal, eternality. It describes his deity. It describes his passion. It describes every aspect of him that transcends everything about humankind. And all of a sudden, the eyes of your mind are open to a being that is, that is sinless, that is powerful, that is perfect, but He's also personal. Amen. He came down to this earth and He died, and the, the, the perspective is this, that if Ross Crow was the only sinner that ever lived, He would have still come for me. He would have, that's how personal it is. And all of a sudden, your heart in a response, is overwhelmed with, with who this is. You, you, you have a picture of what God is like, of whom He is and how much He cares, and the fact that He shed His blood on the cross, and at the very end He says, it is finished. I have accomplished salvation for you. I loved you so much I gave up. The eternality of heaven came to this earth, and forever, I want you to think about this, as you go to heaven, the angels there, they're going to be there forever. God the Father, forever and forever. But there's one human thing in heaven. And that's the glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because He was willing to lock Himself into a body for all of an eternity because He loved you that much. Are you getting the image here? Are you beginning to see the light, the foas of who He is? That photographic image that begins to enlighten your mind thought by thought perspective, your presuppositions begin to change as your worldview becomes biblical. And it is completely enlightened as if you read on in that passage Rusty was talking about in Sunday school, the light into the eyes. As you begin to get an image, a recognition of what Jesus Christ is like and who He is, all of a sudden your eyes are opened and you turn from ascribing worth to that which is of the realm of darkness to ascribing worth to that which is of the realm of light. So what is the purpose of missions? To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. And next we're going to go on, and from the power of Satan unto God. Now most of you know that the word power in the New Testament, there's two key words that are from the Greek. One is, is dunamis, and that's transliterated in English where we get our term for dynamite. In northern Minnesota, I've got an old case, a wooden case, um, where dynamite was actually kept. And my grandfather, who was a game warden, actually took a sabbatical for a year and a half and went and helped dynamite the rock cuts in the Alcan Highway because game wardens were trained in using dynamite for blowing up beaver dams. One time I was down on Namakin Lake. Jim knows where Namakin is. I was down on Namakin Lake, and a buddy of mine and I were going through an old fish camp, and I reached up on a shelf, and there was a wooden box, and I slid it down and kind of dropped it onto a, uh, onto a counter that was there, and it was full of old, oozing dynamite. <laughs> it's a good thing that God is in control, otherwise they would have found me in itsy-bitsy pieces, because old, oozing nitroglycerin out of dynamite is, is really volatile and it can go off at any time. But anyway, that's one of the words. It, it, but that's not the word that's used here. This one is exousia. And the idea behind it is authority in their lives. We need to open their eyes to who Jesus Christ really is. 
from that position of darkness which causes them to ascribe worth to that which is empty and meaningless. To ascribe worth to the one that they now have a picture of because of the Word of God, whom is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But they need to be turned because right now they are under the authority of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, once you trust Christ as your Savior, you've got to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. John said it this way, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world is lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We need to oppose those things because they're taking us in a direction of ascribing worth to that which is temporal, that which will ultimately bring you to a terrible place in an eternity in hell. So we must turn from the power of Satan, his authority in our life. How does that happen? Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, and you have to be quickened or literally made alive at an instant in time who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. I want to give you a little word study. You ready? Listen, I want you to really concentrate on this. That word worketh comes from the Greek word energeo. Transliterated into English, it's where we get our word for energize. And the idea behind that is the world, the flesh, and the devil through the allurements of this world, come to our teenagers, come to us as an adults, and they want to appeal to the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And how he's going to do that, he's going to say, wouldn't this be fun? Wouldn't this be entertaining? Wouldn't this be exciting? Wouldn't this be great to own? Wouldn't it be fun to experience this? Wouldn't it be, a, uh, this is going to be really neat? And then the, the crowds of the world come and say, hey, we're doing it. This is really going to be fun. And then the media comes along and says, yeah, this is really to die for. This is really to live for. This is what we're going to do. We're even going to run commercials at the Super Bowl, spend millions of dollars to show you how much worth we ascribe to that thing. Join us. And then the devil, who is working in the hearts and minds of those who are in the presence of Christians. How do I know that's true? Because even at the upper room at the supper with Jesus and Satan having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's sons to betray him, in that very intimate meeting with Christ, Satan was able to plant thoughts in the mind of one of those in Christ's very presence. That's how dangerous and dubious he is. Therefore, he is trying to work within the unsaved world and even trying to obsessed Christians at times to get us to the place to ascribe worth to anything but the Christ thing. Anything but bringing glory to God. But I'm so glad for God, the Holy Spirit. You know, last night, as Delbert and I were looking over the, the, the results, um, it appears that ten people trusted Christ as their Savior last night. Praise the Lord for that. I mean, that is, that is really great. We're, we're thrilled about that. And, and we, we want to see that accomplished. But I know that the only way somebody opens their eyes from darkness, someone who literally turns from their sin and is removed from the power of Satan unto God, is done so because there's someone else at work. Listen to Philippians 2.13. For it is God which worketh in you, same Greek word, energeo. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So on one side, the devil comes with the world and the flesh and those things of the world, and he's saying, come on, let's ascribe worth to these. Live your life for these. But there is the quiet voice who takes the Word of God, either in song form, either in preaching form of that which you've heard, or verses you've memorized, or even phrases, Ephesians chapter 6. He uses the phrases of the Word of God, and he speaks to you in that quiet voice, saying, you know what? 
that is going to destroy you. Look around. Has it not destroyed others? It will not bring you to fulfillment. Look around. Has it not brought long-term fulfillment to many others? What is the only lasting thing, the only eternal thing, the only real thing, the only substantive thing? And that is the Lord Jesus Christ and Him being the Lord of your life. And so He is energizing me to ascribe worth to God and His Word. So what do I have to do day by day? What do I have to do moment by moment? Paul gave the, the great description. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, he said, um, you know, the time of my departure is about to take place. I love that word because in the original language it comes from the Greek word analusis, which means to untie from the dock. Rusty and I are fishermen in the morning. Sometimes I've said that to Rusty just to be kind of, you know, biblically funny. I say, Rusty, analusis, you know, <laughs> which means untie his boat. We're going fishing. Paul is saying, I'm about to untie from earth and I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to depart from here. And so he tells young Timothy, who's really struggling at Ephesus to stick by the stuff because of the opposition of some carnal people in Alexander the coppersmith, he tells, stick by the stuff, and he says, I'm about to depart. But there's three things that you've got to do as a Christian. He said, you've got to, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. The verbs fought, finished, and kept are perfect indicative in the Greek. And you know what that means? It means that it's something you must continue to do every day of your life for the rest of your life because you think it's important and valuable to your life. So you need to fight against what? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And then you stay on course. And that is the course. That that word is also used for marathon runners. You know, let's say we're all going to get in a marathon. Look up at me. Do I look like a marathon runner? No, don't speak out loud. You're being nice. I understand, but I'm not, okay? Well, let's say we're running in a marathon. I'm running against all of you. Most of you are younger, and most of you are faster, and some of you are much faster. Well, let's say we go on this marathon run, and I'm running on this marathon, and, you know, I let you get out front, and, and the marathon's in a big U in a city, you know? So what I do is I let you get way out front, and I take the avenue, <laughs> and I cut across, and all of a sudden, you go all the way around the U, and I come out, and I'm waiting there, you know, having a cup of coffee and having a donut, and, and all of a sudden, you show up, and here you come running, and I run out in front of you, <laughs> and they go, no. <laughs> He's out front, but he didn't stay on the course. What did I do? I deviated because my eyes were not fixed on the one who calls me to do it his way with integrity. And so I took a shortcut. Who is the one who works within us to take shortcuts in this life rather than to do things biblically? That's right. The energeo comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. I have fought a good fight. I've stayed on course, and then I have kept or have been keeping the faith. That's the tenets as taught by the Word of God. And that means I don't just read the Word of God. Here we go. Here we go. I'm going to read Jeremiah. Pastor, I'm done. What would you read? Jeremiah. And what was it about? Jeremiah and stuff. <laughs> he was, there was some Israel thing in there, and I think there was a guy named Masher, Pasher, Dasher in there somewhere. No, no, that's one of Santa Claus's things. No, no it, it, there was stuff in there. See, what I want you to do is I want you to recognize, I want you to describe worth. And I don't want you to read it informationally. I want you to read it formationally. To form your presuppositions that make up your worldview, to ascribe worth to that which God is teaching. You see, in Acts 26.18, this is what missions is designed to accomplish in the lives of people. To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. And how, why does he do that? Look at the last phrase. 
that they may receive forgiveness of sin. God is so merciful and so gracious and so wonderful. You know what God wants to give us? He wants to give us three forms of life. And I don't know whether you've ever thought about this. But the first form of life is He wants to give you eternal life. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, when I had that course with Dr. Jason Lyle, who's an astrophysicist, has his Ph.D. in astrophysics from the University of Colorado, one of the things that they were talking about is the expanding universe. Did you know our, our universe is continually expanding? And what is the distance between the nearest star and us or the farthest star? And we talk about the distant light theories, and there's some really... I, I just sat and listened to him, and I was just utterly amazed. But if you think about the universe, one of the things that I think we're going to do in eternity is God is going to allow us to experience and explore the vastness of His creative powers. In studying um, even what are called subatomic particles in quantum physics, you know, if you take a, 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 um, a molecule and you divide it up into the atoms, you divide up an atom into the proton, neutrons, and electrons, and you divide the electrons and the protons and neutrons into quarks, there's a, um, a major movement out there today called Stringer M-theory, which you divide that up into subatomic particles, which are little filaments. And some actually believe that when Jesus Christ created the world, he used all these little filaments. And if you strike them, they go in vibration signature, which really makes the elements of the building blocks of life. And so Christ may have actually sang into creation everything that there was. I mean, I, the, um, the, the, the physicists are working on the evidence for that. But the cool thing is, is we know that Jesus Christ created everything that there is in this entire world. And he wants us to sit quietly and recognize how great he is. You know, one of the things that I love to do is go out in the wilderness in northern Minnesota. I know you think it's a weird thing that we live up there, but I've got to be honest with you, our summers are perfect. In the day, it goes up to about 82 degrees. night, all summer, it goes down to about 56, 58. I mean, that's just wonderful. We have the most glorious summers, except for the mosquitoes. Some of the mosquitoes, you know, they'll drag you off into the woods and then the big ones fight over you. That gets to be a little difficult. You know, you want to carry a bat for the big ones. And, you know, that's why the Minnesota Twins are so good. But anyway, um, <laughs> sideline issue. Uh, but the, but <laughs> you and I need to learn to respect and honor and adore our Creator. Psalms 19, the heavens declare the glory of God in the firmament, showeth His handiwork day into day, uttereth speech night into night. Showeth knowledge, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. God's creative ability. And what does that do? It shows us that He is in authority. He is controlling us. And He, this great Creator that lives in heaven, wants to do something for you. He wants to forgive you of your sin. For two summers, I left northern Minnesota, went down and worked in the inner city of Chicago, and uh, we did backyard Bible clubs all over Chicago and worked at the Pacific Garden Rescue Mission doing their morning preaching service. And boy, that was a real enlightener for this upper middle class northern Minnesota boy. I remember one doctor that was there, a medical doctor who had become a drunk, lost his family, lost his uh, practice, um, lost everything about his life, and he'd come there every morning, just smelled of vomit, and he was a filthy drunk. One 14-year-old boy who was a drug addict who came to me several mornings and asked me to lead him to Christ. 
But because his mind was so burned out from heroin and cocaine that he couldn't concentrate for more than five seconds on anything. So I'd grab him by the side of the face and say, look into my eyes and just concentrate for a minute. Christ died for you. You're a sinner. Turn to him. And by the time he even got there, his mind would wander away again. Just destroyed from drugs. And you begin to see what Satan's ultimate goal is. Young people, Satan's answer to life is death. A month and a half ago, I got a call from our neighbors. Their young teenage daughter had come to church for a long time. Um, My wife supposedly led her to the Lord. She went upstairs and she overdosed on sleeping pills. And she was laying on the floor when I got there. The husband was weeping absolutely uncontrollably. And if it would have been appropriate, I would have taken a picture. But when I went upstairs, this young teenage girl was laying on the floor face down. And her mother hovered over her back. And I noticed that her back was all wet. And I was wondering, what was that all about? And it was from the tears of her mother. It soaked the daughter's back, weeping because she had taken her young life. Someone whom I had preached to. I did her funeral and preached also. We had a community memorial service, which there was probably five to seven hundred people from the high school and gathered all around. And one of the things tried to communicate, you know what? Satan's answer to life is that, is death. And when you do not see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, your eyes are not opened and you're turned, not turned from the authority of darkness unto light, when the purpose and the power of missions does not impact your life, this is where it goes. The way of the transgressor is hard. Behold, Satan as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour to energize them for fun and excitement and ascribe worth to that which is what? When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. But sin, when it is finished, brings forth... Thank you. And there she was lying on the floor. An absolutely beautiful young girl. I mean, could have been a model in any of the world's magazines. She's just absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. Laying on the floor dead because of her worldview. And immediately I thought, if you would have only responded to the photograph of who Christ is, and embraced His love and His forgiveness, how differently your life would be. Down at the Pacific Garden Rescue Mission, one of the things that you never had to argue the guys into, we did the 6 in the morning service, in order to have breakfast, they had to show up at 6 in the morning. Well, drunks and drug addicts are real thrilled about getting up at 6 in the morning anyway. Secondly, they're not really thrilled about hearing young preachers, nor singing quartets, and that's what we did. And, uh, but um, you never had to argue with them about whether they were sinners or not. You go, you're all sinners! And they go, got that one down, preacher. <laughs> you bet. We got, yeah, we got that corner of the market cornered there, you know. We are sinners, that's really good. But if you ever wanted to arrest their hearts, all you had to say, I bet many of you in this room have a grandmother somewhere in your life who prayed for you not to be what you are right now. And collectively their heads would drop. Because they knew they were sinning and they needed forgiveness. January 5th, 1973, in the shores of Lake Captogama, northern Minnesota, as a rebellious teenage boy, 
my father and I sat near a fireplace one cold winter evening. It was 35 degrees below outside. We're sitting there enjoying the fire, and Dad said, Ross, Christ died for you and shed his precious blood for you that you could be forgiven. And God the Holy Spirit worked in my heart and mind taking the blindness away and showing me that I was ascribing worth unto the things of this world and the only thing of value is Christ. And my eyes were open to the truth of the gospel and I was born again into the family of God that night. I stand before you today because God has worked in my heart and now I have the phoas. I have the image of what Jesus Christ is, what He's done for me, and that He is the Lord of my life and He is the only thing of value. And I can't wait for the the trumpet of the rapture to walk through death's door. I have a desire to depart because I understand God has made at least 23 levels in in, in the universe. I mean, there are, uh, you know, it's not just three dimensional. There's at least, if you look at, study quantum physics, There's at least 23 dimensions. And I can't imagine when I get to heaven and God sends us out and He said, Ross, Rusty, I tell you what, there is a lake that is out there. It's 55 quadrillion miles on the backside of this little place. I want you to go out there and I want you to see what I made over there. I say, Lord, you did that? Yeah. Well, you see, I knew Rusty and Ross. I knew you were coming to heaven. And I know you'll love that sort of thing. And I know you'll praise me for it. That's what he's like. And it's all afforded me because of missions, which brings me forgiveness of sins. And look at the last phrase there. So I have this inheritance among them which are sanctified. You see, he gives me eternal life, but on this earth he gives me abundant life that I might impact myself, my family, my friends, and my world. And he gives me a rewarded life. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7? I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. What does he say in verse 8? Henceforth, or because of these things, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, but not unto me only, but unto all all them also that love His appearing. All those who ascribe worth into Jesus Christ because they value the gospel, they value missions and what it accomplishes in their life, God's going to bring you before Him one day and He's going to give you a crown. He's going to give you a great reward. And I know the very first thing we're going to do, we're going to fall before Him and say, Lord, 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 I was so unfaithful. I was, I was so inconsistent. Lord, take this. Please take it right away. Because anything good, anything eternal, anything of value that was accomplished in my life, Lord, it was because of Your energeo in my heart. You're working within me both to will and to do of your good pleasure. Here's the crown, Lord. And He will reach down with His nail-pierced hands and pull me to my feet and say, Yes, but I have made you to know forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those that are sanctified, set apart from all sin. You are a child of God in your standing. The Father now looks at you the way He looks at me. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, someone has said justification is just as if I never sinned. I don't agree with that at all. Justification says you are a guilty sinner, totally deserving of hell. And what happened is this Christ stepped in and made the complete payment for you. And now it's not just as if you never sinned. It's a complete recognition that you did and you've received complete forgiveness for it. Because of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by 
Faith that is in, and by the way, it's a transaction of what does he say in the last phrase? Transaction of faith. But look at those two last words. I want you, this is where we need to do formative reading. Jesus said, all this is made possible. Jesus said, and I want to use this word carefully because I want you to focus on him. Jesus said, and it's all possible in me. That's the person of missions. That's who we go to proclaim. That's whom we go to hold up. Did that make a difference in Paul's life? I want you to look with me down in verse 21. Excuse me, verse 22. Having therefore obtained help from God, I continue unto this day witnessing both the small and great, saying none of the things. Pastor, would you write a book on that for me, please? I'll write the foreword, but would you write a book on that? Saying none other things. Because I'll tell you, the church is getting off track today on all different kinds of things. What Jesus Christ, or what the world needs and what America needs, is an image of who Jesus Christ really is, theologically, biblically, accurately. And I promise you, it's going to transform any country, any nation, any person, when this transaction, they're saying what? None other thing. This is the message. This is whom we are. And you know what? I'm so grateful that I, I recognize... Here at Grace Baptist Church, that's who you are. Saying none of the things in verse 22, that those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, look at verse 23, that Christ should suffer and that He should be the first to rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. What is that light? What is that light? You can tell me. What is the Greek word for that? Phos. He is that light. He is the photographic image of whom God is. You know what? I'm looking in many of your faces and I recognize something. You've seen him, haven't you? And we could sit down and just have us a good cry about how great God is sometimes, couldn't we? And then, have you ever read through the book of Psalms and it said Selah? That Hebrew word means to go up in a very high place and sit quietly in a vantage point in the cleft of the rock, which, by the way, Jesus is, Greek word Petra, he is that rock. Sit in that cleft of the rock and think about how great and how wonderful and how perfect and how glorious and how patient and how faithful and how uh, planning He is for each and every one of us. Because I guarantee at funerals, your pastor gathers people together and he says, Let not your heart be troubled. What's he talking about? The plan of Jesus. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. What was he talking about? What's Pastor Sharon with at the funerals in this, in this, uh, amongst this assembly? He's telling you that God's made a plan. Not only has he made a provision, not only did he provide salvation, but he's made a plan for us for all of an eternity. And you know what? Today I ascribe that as the most valuable thing that there is. Amen. Period. And that's what missions is all about. It just so happens, I'm not there today, but Dr. Belding, my pastor, is anchoring and ending our missions month today at Berean Baptist Church. And it's neat that you're doing the same. But that missions month is really all about Christ and showing that image of who He is to the world that they might be saved. You know who I am? Rusty will tell you. He'll pull you aside later and tell you who I really am. I'm a doc boy. My dad owned resorts. I'm a hick from the sticks in northern Minnesota. My only claim to fame is I can still fillet three walleyes a minute. I'm good at filleting fish. That's it. That's my claim to fame. All of the rest that you see in my life that has been productive, I ascribe to Jesus. And so do you.
so that we might go forth and share the gospel with a lost and dying world. What are we trying to accomplish with our missions? Look what it says, and I'll close. To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and inheritance amongst those who are sanctified, set apart from sin unto God. That's positional sanctification. That is in me, Jesus said. I'll close, but listen. Perhaps you're here today and you've never been born again into the family of God. Jesus has opened your eyes. The Spirit of God is working in your heart and you need to get saved. This is what I want you to do in the quietness of your own heart. Romans 10:13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That word call comes from the Greek word epikaleomai, and it means to call out to one who will actually change you so much that you'll have a new surname. Remember when, when Simon was called as the fisherman? And he said, your name's no longer going to be Simon, it's going to be Peter. Why did the Lord give him a new surname? It's because Christ transformed his life. You see, the surname that God wants to give you, because re- presently, if you don't know Christ, you are, whatever your name is, the sinner. But Jesus wants to give you a new surname. He wants you to give you the name Christian. Born again one. Child of God. Adopted one into the family of God. So for whosoever shall call out to Jesus Christ, recognizing that he died for your sins, you put your faith and trust in that. Epistrepho, turn from your sins, from darkness to light, from the authority of Satan unto God. When you turn to him and you cry out in faith, because for, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, you cry out to him because the Spirit of God has been energetic, oh, working in your heart. You cry out to him and you ask him to be your Lord and Savior. You are born again into the family of God. You become a child of God. And you now have a new surname because you've made the call, you are now called a Christian. Right where you're seated in the quietness of your own heart, I want you to call unto him and ask him to be your Savior. Let's bow our heads together. Dear Lord Jesus, for those that are making that call right now, I pray that you'd give them the strength and the boldness and courage to come up to pastor after the service is done and simply shake his hand and say, I did what the evangelist said. I called on the name of the Lord. I trusted Christ. And I just want you to know that. And I really want to grow in my new relationship now that I am called by this name as a Christian. I pray, Lord, that now your people will respond to this invitation. An invitation, Lord, to take the gospel to their Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth to ascribe worth to the fact that, that missions is about you and we, we want to take that image of whom we know you are theologically, scripturally, and we want to bring that before as many minds and faces as possible. Lord, as one who is mission-supported and is dependent upon the giving of your people, right now I, I know how important a missions month is in a local church. Because you provide for us many physical things, the truck, our food, our home, through the giving of your people, Lord. So that we can go out and share the gospel like we did last night and even here this morning. Lord, thank you for those who give. I pray, Father, that you'd work in the hearts of your dear people at this church to give. Not because we as servants just need it. Lord, you can take care of us. 
but because they have a responsibility, because they have ascribed worth to you. They have ascribed worth to the gospel. They have ascribed worth to missions. And, O oh Lord, they have made it a concerted, dedicated effort to let you be the Lord of their lives and to live for your honor and for your glory. So bless, O oh Lord, we pray this closing. And I pray that your people would response, respond in obedience and faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.